we're sending about 9,000 cold emails every single week, which is pretty nuts. Um, and that is how we get the majority of our conversations. From that, we're getting about 40 to 50 meetings a week with a team of two people on our sales team. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to The Shift. I'm your host, Andrew Shimaru, and I am here today with Travis Page, head of product at Cinebody. Man, Cinebody is uh, quite quite an interesting company. You guys are doing a lot of of interesting stuff. Give us a rundown on Cinebody real quick. So Cinebody is a uh, video production platform. Uh, We originally were a um, video production service company to where we would go out, we'd film massive commercials for people. And then the iPhone 6 came out and we said, oh, this thing can film in 4K and it's connected to the internet. This is absolutely nuts. So we said, what if we took our workflow and turned it into a software as a service company? It totally worked. At first, uh, people were a little bit hesitant of the way that the iPhone could actually capture it. Uh, not a whole lot of confidence in it. Now people are making commercials. So essentially, Cinebody, uh, you come up with a video production idea. So say you are filming, just for example, a show at Red Rocks, right? So you say like, okay, cool. Out of all the shots in the shot list to make a final video of an event concert recap, what we would want is we would want to film people in the parking lot having fun. We were not, we would want to film people like walking up to the actual venue itself, people coming in, buying merch, ordering drinks, talking to fans, stuff like that, the entirety of the show. And then we would want to film people walking out into the parking lot saying how awesome the show was, right? A typical video production like that would cost anywhere between a hundred grand and 200 grand. Obviously incredibly cost prohibitive. And at the time that was just kind of the way the world worked. There is no other way to do it. So you would hire a crew, you would hire pre-production crew. And a post-production crew, you'd film everything and then you'd mail the hard drives back to the editors. Roughly a week later, you would finally have, after a couple of revisions, your final product. We said, that's completely ridiculous. All of these cameras are connected and they're just as good as any like amazing production camera you have in the market right now. So essentially, you create all those shots that you want, the parking lot, the show, all of that. Uh, you put that on the platform and you say, okay, cool. Who do we want to film it? What about every single person there? Everyone has a camera in their pocket. So what we did at that point, we said like, okay, let's find an easy way to distribute that. We created a little smart like technology. You send that out. You say, oh, I just got an event notification from my ticket holder. Okay, sweet. I'm going to this concert. Yeah. Oh, I can win stuff for filming to this. You click it, download the Cinebody Capture app, and then boom, you're guided shot by shot on how you're supposed to capture it. Automatically tells you, hey, Make sure this is in landscape or horizontal, whatever it might be, standardize the frame rate, resolution. And then as soon as you're done filming, each of the individual clips that you're filming goes back up to the editors. No mailing of hard drives involved. They're able to say, oh, okay, cool. I got this shot from somebody who's standing in the front row. They're filming great shots all night. I'm able to use the chat feature to chat to them and kind of play roller coaster tycoon to people in real time to get the best shots that you want, right? Um, so that's kind of been the evolution, what we've been doing. We're 18, 18 Fortune 500s right now, using it for a lot of uh, jar. So we kind of have a little bit of like duality of cool stuff on the spectrum. We have massive companies using it for HR and then sort of like low budget, but definitely names you've heard of. So like Slash, Odessa, Big Wild, um, every major music festival in North America is using it right now. Raven Kane's just used it to open their new Post Malone location in Utah. Oh, that's awesome, man. I mean, we're, we're not talking about a, a simple um, side project 
to-do list app that uh, you know someone hacked together on a weekend. We're talking about a fairly sophisticated enterprise level software platform that is capable of being used by a huge amount of people coordinate these uh, these different projects. So um, my understanding is that you've done this all with a dev team that you build remotely and uh, essentially used as a tier advantage in terms of building this platform. Talk to me a little bit about what that dev team looked like in the early days, how you got that going, and in particular, of course, with an emphasis on how you did that all remotely and sort of your, your thinking thought process around yeah, so we started Cinnabody um, around like 2017. This was back when there was no such thing as remote. It was, there were such things as remote, but it was essentially like, okay, cool. You're either working with in India and you have full software requirements, you have full design, you send it to India, it comes back and it's 10% of what you really wanted. So we originally had software partners that were awesome. We originally just used an agency. We talked with them. They helped us out a bunch there with these dudes that in this little bespoke agency called Barbershop. They're really, really good. They got us up to like an MVP status to where we're like, okay, awesome. We can kind of prove this in the market. We actually sold a lot of the concepts of different agents to different marketing agencies and video production agencies around the planet um, before there was even a V1 of the product. It wasn't even beta. We were kind of just selling them the concept. So we hired an agency to kind of get us to just that MVP. I think it's really important when you're starting um, something that does not have any direct competitors that you can compare to, to work with an agency that has a proven track record that actually like knows how to work together. That way you're not being a first-time founder, second-time founder, third-time founder, where you're trying to hire a team and it's completely disjointed. I would say try to start with an agency that has a proven track record to just get you to that bare bones MVP. Unless you've had like a long time kind of working pieces of how you build products. And then I think that's when the remote aspect really comes in hard. Um, so once we had it off the ground, we ran that MVP pretty much into the ground for like two years. And then the pandemic hit us like super, super hard. I guess it would be three years, but pandemic hit us uh, pretty hard in the sense that it wasn't like we were losing customers. The entire thesis around Cinebody is that, hey, you don't need to do things traditionally. You can actually like send video cameras all around the world and you don't need to have like a traditional in-house agency everybody can be at home and you can still be doing the exact same internal com- communications that you would need in hr for a thirty thousand person company right so we're like everybody that we had ever talked to had came back to us and said hey video production is now illegal we really need to like make this thing the forefront of like what we need is our importance for our media strategy so i said okay, this is crazy. Like I really need to set up like a super solid dev team that's fully remote. We had worked with remote devs before, um, but now we really need to assemble a team. It was fully remote and really like work on, okay, what is our organizational structure? What's our day-to-day structure? What's our structure as far as like, we have a feature that we know needs 10 full-time people. Okay, cool. What does that look like from scaling to those 10 times 10 people? And what does it look like for smaller features where we might only need a team of two, sometimes only one, because we have three essential like core offerings, right? We have straight out of the box, which is the platform, which is a web platform and an iOS, um, an iOS app. And then we also have API products, right? So large corporations that are Super, super big, lots of like security risks that they need to mitigate. 
they will use our API and they will build on top of our API, right? So we're saying like, okay, cool. We need to create not only a modular team for us to build features internally, but sometimes we need to build a modular team for other companies. They're huge. We need to make sure that we can supply them with a team. Um, so that was kind of our thought process of how we switch from, okay, MVP, this is generating revenue. We can kind of create a roadmap based off of the re- revenue we're generating to, oh, we need to hit the gas like right now. How do we do it and what tools and what structure and what sort of um, pools can we pull from for our team? Yeah. So um, I want to talk about numbers real quick. I'm not sure we didn't speak about this before, so I'm not sure if you can share any of this, but can you give a yeah. sense of what it cost to get the MVP running with the agency in the early days? And then also what it costs to get the dev team up and running. Um, and, and maybe we can look at this from like the initial budget or the initial outlay for teams. I'm sure now probably costs a lot more as things have scaled up. But uh, can you give a sense of like cost to sense the numbers? Yeah, so I'll, I'll give you generalities because I think generalities are, are better to help people frame like what it could cost them. Um, so if you think about hiring, it will, we'll start from most traditional to least traditional. So most traditional, right, you would hire a full team, right? We uh, make ground traditional would be you would hire an agency and then least traditional, like you would hire a modular dev, dev team, which is what we do. So if you're going like, let's say like a Y Combinator route, right? Just for bare bones to get an MVP off the ground for like a serious software company that you have a thesis on, you have investors in, you're definitely going to want a senior back engineer. You're going to want a senior front end engineer. And in our case, you'll always want an iOS engineer and then you want a designer, right? Each of those people for senior, you're at least paying $150,000, right? So you're looking at $600,000 a year just to get up to MVP. And a lot of people don't even hit that MVP their first year. So say it takes two years to get off to, to get like a serious, like enterprise ready MVP off the ground. Like you're looking at $1.2 million. million dollars it's, right yeah. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. And by today's, th- those are also by somewhat of like 2017 standards, like today's standards. If you don't get an MVP off the ground in the first year, you have some very angry investors. Uh, but that's just the arbitrary example that I'll use uh, for somewhat realistic salary numbers, right? Whereas if you're using um, like, say, an agency, you could probably do the same for roughly around like 200 to 250,000 if you're looking at full iOS build where you're touching metal as far as like, okay, cool, touching metal, you're actually working with the camera and you're building like a fully responsive desktop app needs to make all of your security measures for enterprise clients and an API. It has documentation, has usability across everything. It has readability and it has postman examples that people can clone. Um, so that's in the zone of like, okay, we hired an agency. I wouldn't go to a fully modular team until you're ready for that point. Um, but after that, you can usually get away with extremely robust feature sets where between 60 grand and 150 grand for extremely robust feature sets that handle API and front end and back end and iOS. So it's, it's really variable. Um, and it's especially variable because you're looking at, okay, cool. How do I deal with scaling these teams for, do I need one person? Cause I need one person working maybe a total of 20 hours on one tiny feature set on iOS, or am I working on a feature, say like, like a chat feature, right? that would need to take the API. We also need to use SDKs from like a a chat SDK and a chat API library that we're using. Uh, And then we also need to make sure that it integrates with iOS. 
and then all across the board, right? And we also need to make sure that security compliant, right? You're going to take a lot of hours from a lot of different areas. And so that's kind of the trick. But that's also the nice thing too, because as somebody who's like a product owner, you can say, okay, cool. Now I have a much better way to weigh things out as far as like, this is going to create revenue versus this is going to be like a cost center, right? And you're able to weigh those a lot more effectively rather than I need to give a dev that's getting paid $250,000 a year, 40 hours a week of work every single week, right? It helps you make a lot more logical and consistent across the board. Got you. So it sounds like, and let me paraphrase, paraphrase here. Tell me if this is the case. You basically look at the way that you organize your dev team through the lens of product, and then you scale up or down or kind of like running um, a Heroku instance and you're, and you're like moving the slider exactly. up or down depending on what you need. That's how you think about your dev team. So you'll say, okay, well, we need to launch this new feature or this new this new push is coming to upgrade to version three or whatever. Um, yep. We're going to need to do this, 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 and this. These are the resources it takes. Let's go to all the people in our modular dev network and say, okay, who can who can help? And then and then put together essentially like the project scope from from there. Is that is that right? Exactly. Exactly. Uh, okay, I see. And so basically, so so your take is that it, getting to an MVP sort of built like base code project and everything, and then you and you've been incrementally building on that right, feature sets ever since. Yep, exactly. And as long as you have like really, really seriously solid documentation and wikis uh, in order to describe to future devs, hey, here's why we made these decisions. Here's things that we ran into. Here's why we couldn't go in a certain direction. That way you're not wasting money in the future on other devs that are maybe not code based. That's going to save you a lot of headache and a lot of time and a lot of money. Got to. I I, I really like that because um, I think we were speaking a little bit earlier about Kind of the ways that, that SaaS in particular is structured. And I, I think it's a, a smart way to go about the business in terms of not just committing to a fixed level of expenses and saying, well, we have this SaaS product. Our, our gross margins are 80% off of our, our hosting costs, off of our bandwidth costs, off of our server cost. Um, but we, we're going to cut that down to 20% on the net in order to have a massive yeah. dev team and keep building, building, building with this idea that you're going to get billion dollars of ARR and, and, and that's going to yep. be. Is sort of your exit trajectory, but you guys have done things a little differently, which I think is uh, very, very smart uh, yeah. in, in terms of how you structured that. Um, I want to talk about the, the the operating system of the team real quick. Um, and what I mean by that is basically how you set out to build features, achieve goals, um, make things happen, essentially, when you go into, let's say, feature set. Um, how do you do that? And how do you think about that? Is there like a guiding philosophy? Um, is there is there a way that you organize um, across the team? How do you make things happen? Yeah, totally. So I kind of think of things a little bit differently. I think of things that are like innovation drivers, which is better for the product overall or revenue drivers, right? Um, so you think of like, hey, it's more of like a, I talked to 20 customers. These 20 customers want this. They're willing to pay extra for this to bring them to a new tier. Okay, cool. That's one side of like the teeter-totter say, and that's a revenue driver versus an innovative innovation driver, which keeps us like fresh, relevant. Maybe there's a new patent that we can go through. We have five global patents right now. And we can say like, oh, okay, this is really going to like wow people or it's something that's really interesting or hey, this is a feature nobody's ever thought of before. We should try to make this happen. And this will make people like really excited and people will never, never have thought of this product like this before. This is really cool, right? Oftentimes, there's a lot more weight as far as leadership is concerned on the revenue side of the teeter-totter. 
Um, but that's kind of how I think of things. So I think of things like, okay, what are our revenue goals for the quarter? What are the revenue goals for the year? And say like, oh, okay, cool. We're kind of behind that. Well, it's, I'll look at the numbers holistically. I'll say, okay, this is not due to any fault of sales or this is not due to any fault of any other circumstances and say like, oh, okay, cool. We really need to push this revenue outside of the teeter-totter a little bit harder, right? So then what I'll say is like, oh, okay, cool. How large is the, what is the largest force multiplier feature that we can develop next? Well, we'll take the least amount of time and generate the largest amount of revenue. Um, and how many people do we need on the team based off the time horizon that we think is the most effective available. So to give you a concrete example, we would say, hey, a lot of people are saying like, well, this is a great software, but I have to text people who are filming or I have to email people who are filming and that's not helpful for us. It would be really, really beneficial for us to have a chat feature. So we say, okay, cool. When's the next renewal date for these people? Okay, on average, it's in four months. Okay, cool. On average, it's in four months from now. What we need to do is we need to build this feature in three months. Then I say, okay, cool. How do we estimate the total number of hours? We go through and we'll go through and we'll say like, in a chat feature, we need X number of features within as sub features, right? So we need a way to send pictures. We need a way to send group chats. We need a way to send individual chats. We need a way to block chats. And then what we'll do is we will start designing for each of those individual epics. And then from there, what I'll do is I'll go out to the remote dev teams um, that come from a different uh, different resources, either from my network or some of our developers' networks or two resources that I really like, which are Toptal and Lemon.io. Both of those are networks of remote developers that are highly, highly vetted. Toptal, I think, has like top 3% of developers. Lemon has something somewhere. Then I'll try to go out I'll interview a ton of developers if we don't have them in network. And I'll say, hey, give me an estimate based off these requirements. So at this point, if it's something very cut and dry, like the way chat works, um, you can go out and you can say, hey, here's exactly what I want. Here's exactly how I need it to be done. Here are exact designs. And here are epics based off of features that are broken down very, very highly. That means you have happy paths. Okay, I sent a chat. You have sad paths. I sent a chat but it didn't go through. Why didn't it go through? Oh, because my connection was bad, because their connection was bad, because I said something that was a bad word in the chat. So you really need, when you're running these remote teams, really need to think of every possible element in order to get accurate estimates, right? So say I have all of that expertly organized and like ready to send out to all these developers. One developer tells me, hey, it's going to take me 200 hours. And then I take a look and I say, oh, okay, cool. What's their hourly rate? oh, their hourly rate is $100, $100 an hour. And then I go out to another developer and they say, ah, it's only going to take me 75 hours, but their rate is $110 an hour. It's very easy to make decisions at that point. And then you can say like, oh, okay, cool. I have a developer that is that says it's only going to take him 50 hours, but his rate is 200. Then you can kind of balance point and say like, oh, okay, cool. Now I know that I can actually get this done for a little bit more expensive in two months and I know that's going to save us X amount of churn revenue based off of my estimates that happen right here. So that's kind of the thought process of how I balance fun versus revenue and how to get things done on time and what it's going to cost versus what we might lose in revenue. We get churned customers that absolutely need this feature. They can't live without it. Yeah, that's, that's um, fascinating to, to hear the, the, the breakdown of the thought process behind that. And um, let, let me let me see if I um, understand this right. Tell me if this is correct. It sounds like um, 
once you've identified what should be built, a lot of the work in terms of building that is before you even get to the development stage. It's all in the design process. It's all in the figuring out what you want to build so that then when you go to those developers, you can be very efficient um, with your with your dollars. You can be very efficient with your time. That's, that's I think, generally a, a pretty smart way to go yep. about things and probably, uh, I think, something very important to point out because I, I would guess that a lot of teams probably go to their development team and say, oh, let's build this. How do we do that? Let's figure it out. Yeah. I mean, probably a lot of time and a lot of money is wasted in that process where, um, and, and this is one of the core components of high functioning remote team is, is documentation and figuring out how uh, you're doing before you actually go to do it. And I think yep. you got to be a little careful of not over planning because you can waste a lot of time in that respect as well. There's a balance between over planning, not planning enough. But, uh, yeah, when you do that right, you can be very efficient with your, um, expensive resources such as dev teams. And I, yeah. so there's, there's one other component to this that I want to, um, that I want to discuss, um, before moving to some of these other things I'm going to talk about here, which is, uh, productivity and especially with your dev team. I think in your particular case, you have a certain relationship with your developers because they're freelancers. They're coming in on a project basis. Um, they're working on certain things that are very well defined. So very clear start and end to what they're working on. Um, but do you ever have cases where things are taking longer than usual? There's delays, um, and all of a sudden you're eating up resources. Like, how do you make sure that things are done on time, done in the right way? Yeah. So, um, there are a couple of ways to do that. So what I just ironed out and like kind of the example I first gave was chat, right? That's a very straightforward example. No matter what with development, it's going to take you longer than you initially think, right? So you're going to want to just like pack that into your original budgets and set expectations. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. Uh, but also, so like, say you're working on something like chat. It's something that's been done a million times before. There's SDKs that you can set up. You can set up pretty much everything you want for design. You can even run uh, example code locally that you can say it has quite high reliability and this is exactly how you want it to work. That way designers or developers can see exactly how the UX works, right? Um, but say you're going into completely uncharted territory, right? As you go on, and you continuously work with remote developers, you're going to start to get like, oh, okay, I know that I really like these group of six developers, right? You're going to want to bring them in as early as humanly possible. And you're going to want to show them like, hey, here's the problem that customers are having. Here's what I think would be the goal in order to solve these customers' pain points. And then you want to work with them as soon as humanly possible. Developers are smart, right? They like to work on novel problems. They like to explore. But if you let them explore forever and you don't give them direction, it's incredibly frustrating. It's incre- it's going to be frustrating for you. It's going to be super frustrating for them. Um, so at some point you need to say, all agree upon the solution, right? And you can say like, oh, okay, cool. This is kind of like a slushily developed problem. We think we have a solution. Let's go in this direction, right? You can even go far to say like, okay, cool. We're going to start building an MVP for this solution that we think we have under our thumb right now. And you give yourself a week buffer time and you say, okay, cool. I think we can try to find a solution in this week. That way you don't waste 10 weeks on a solution that you should have abandoned after one week, right? That's super, super important. And you'll find that like, as you build trust with your remote developers, it'll get a lot easier because you worked on problems before. You kind of understand how one another work together. I think it's very important when you're working on something that's not super straightforward that you have a cadence of saying, okay, cool, this hypothesis has failed. 
for whatever reason, this library won't work or we're completely down the wrong track. Um, and so having that cadence when it's a lot more slushy as far as, Hey, this is a plan that we have like perfectly dialed out. UX UI is all solid. We know what SDKs we're going to use for an example, like chat, um, just give yourself a little bit of buffer that way you can kind of align with everybody who's like either the CFO or sales, give yourself a little bit of a timeline buffer and a little bit of a buffet, uh, budget buffer. Got you. So, um, I, I think this is really uh, about putting parameters around, uh, around work. If that sounds right, yeah. basically yeah. it's let's time box this, let's budget box this, let's, let's put some uh, parameters around what we're building around our goals and that, that can point. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, cool. exactly. Cool. So I want to move on to uh, talking about the technology stack. What kind yeah. of tech are we talking? Maybe just give us like a rapid rundown of tools, platforms, um, everything yeah. used to coordinate and build. Yeah. Yeah. So, so totally, um, as far as like high level, um, Really, we use Google Docs. So when we're talking about like what our goals are for, for like a quarter or for a year, we're talking like only the executive team. We're literally using Google Docs. We're trying to make it as simple as possible for everybody to get on board and for everybody to understand. Once we have that lined out, then you're going into individual tooling per team, right? Then it needs to be highly specialized tooling per team, especially if each of those teams are remote. For example, my team, we work super highly on Jira. So Jira is super important for us because then we can see all of our plans for the entirety of the year. If there are bugs, anything like that, we can just throw it into the backlog, assign it a priority, and assign it a defined problem, solution, and potential fixes, drop logs in there. Um, but essentially what we have is we have Jira that's operating off of a roadmap. So we have a roadmap with super, super spongy timeline on each of the individual feature sets that we want to build. And then we'll also say, okay, cool. This feature is dependent on this feature. This feature also not be built until the resource of our iOS developer is freed up. That way you always know what is dependent on what. And then from there, once you have that super like high level view, um, each one of those has a drop down for the epics that I was explaining, right? So say if we have a chat feature that we think is going to take three months, each of those have its, has an epic, which does just essentially describes a high level feature within each of those features. If that's Hey, this needs to be able to send a video chat. This needs to be able to send a photo chat. This needs to be able to send 7,000 words versus 250 characters, right? Um, that way we can start to plan. Okay, cool. We know that we're going to have this team for another 10 months and it's going to be just this team. And then anything else that's a resource that we need, we'll hire somebody to fix bugs or we'll hire somebody to come in and do a security enhancement or we'll hire somebody to come in and deal with some technical debt or write documentation, stuff like that. So that's that's the general technology stack as far as organization is concerned. Confluence, the company that owns Jira, also has a fairly solid wiki system. So if there's a feature that's being built on top of a previous feature, we'll always link that wiki doc um, to, hey, dev number one built one of a feature, we'll call it chat. Okay, cool. We're bringing in two more devs to work on feature chat for V2. They need to read these docs in order to know what potholes uh, to, uh, to completely avoid things that we've dealt with in the past, version updates for SDKs that need to be improved, stuff like that. And then luckily, all of that is integrated through GitHub. That way we know exactly what, say, we do a major release. We think everything's fine. And then a week later, we find some like a version history has been changed. 
and there's serious problems with an upload feature, say. We'll know and we'll be able to trace that back. That way we can say, okay, cool. We know that this was the exact release and we know that because it's connected through GitHub, which is super helpful. Um, so we run that. Um, also, we have a fantastic QA team in the Philippines. Uh, they're Foxhole QA. They're super, super solid. And one thing that's a huge benefit is we always run off hours releases. So typically what a, a non-remote dev team would do is you would release a major feature set and you would release it at 11 p.m. at night and then you'd be QAing until four in the morning trying to fix bugs. Instead of that, we're able to fit, like send a release at 11 p.m., have QA run all night until we're like, okay, cool. Everything that we need to make sure is like super stable if that's core features, if that's everything security, if that's everything mobile, and if that's everything that's run test through API and iOS. We say, okay, cool, that took us an hour. Pem, you're in the Philippines. It's currently 8 a.m. Run a full regression test. We go to sleep. We wake up the next day. We hear, hey, everything's great. Or, hey, everything is great except for these three feet, these three like QA bugs. Able to fix them, boom, all is well. Instead of panicking and staying up until 8 a.m. the next day on U.S. time, and then we're all exhausted, mistakes are going to get made, things are going to go poorly. Got you. That that's fascinating because I I, I remember this having this conversation many times at uh, Optimotive. There are multiple times that came up where we discussed. Oh well, we're in different time zones. Can we have rolling projects where where whoever's awake at night is working on stuff and they hand it over to the other time zone when when they wake up on the other side of the world and then we kind of keep things going. Um, we found it very difficult to do that due to the differentiated nature of what I was working on, also across like. 15 clients and also across the work that <laughs> required yeah. a lot of collaboration. Um, but, yeah. but this is sounds like a perfect use case for that kind of a thing, which is like, you don't necessarily need to be on the phone coordinating on a zoom call coordinating. It's more so you know exactly what needs to be done. You can be handed off the whole, the whole thing process can run while you sleep. And then when you wake up, you can jump back and really a time saver, really uh, yeah. a, an efficiency uh, measure in terms of how you're running your workflow, which I think is fantastic. Um, I was going to ask yeah. you about your documentation, which I think you've kind of uh, alluded to that as, as you're just laying out sort of your general workflow. Um, is that where you would say you capture most most information, most knowledge, like internal like wiki level stuff is, is in that documentation? Yeah, so also, uh, so we'll do, every time we have standups, we have an ongoing standup doc. Uh, and one thing that's super important, it's kind of alludes to what you were saying, is we have standups. We have standups three times a week where we say like, okay, cool. We're going to run a standup Monday at 8 a.m., Wednesday at 8 a.m., Friday at 8 a.m. And we'll increase the frequency of those if we're working on something super, super developer heavy where we need to talk more frequently. Um, but really what needs to happen is like people are having too many standups and it's wasting everybody's time. Um, really what needs to happen is you need to have a standup. If you don't have a ton of work to do and you don't have any questions. Or if you do, if you don't have a ton of work to do, or you do have questions, right? Uh, trying to figure out what's next or why is this not working? So that's why standups are important. But all of the information that's talked about there, even if it's unrelated to this front we're working on, is all captured in that doc. And then once a week, I will go in and I will say, okay, cool. This is really important. I will add any of the notes to tickets that we have in Jira, right? So. Any very, very small single task developer item will be added to that ticket, right? So say if we say like, um, 
oh shit, for whatever reason, SDK v2 chat is not working. We need to make sure that we update to SDK v5, right? At the end of the week, I will go in and write that. And then at the end of the, the entirety of those chat sprints, I will look in and say like, okay, cool. What roadblocks do we really r- run into that we need to remember about for the future? Then I will go and dump that into like our release notes that are available to the public, our release notes that are available internally, and then our wiki for the entirety of that feature set. That way we have three different places. We have, okay, customer service knows about it. The public knows about it. And then also our developers that might work in the future know about it. Gotcha. So looking uh, apart a couple of things from that just now, um, with your team, knowing that you have a lot of freelancers, you have your QA team in the Philippines, you have different freelancers from, I'd imagine, all over. Um, are they all in stand-up? How do, you, how do you bring certain people into stand-up? Is that, and, and obviously, if you're paying on, on an hourly basis, that's, that can be an expensive use of time. How do you think about yeah. people into that stand-up? Yeah, so um, honestly, so if you're using Lemon.io, they use a lot of uh, European developers. Uh, and honestly, they're extraordinarily high quality. Um, and then if you're using Toptal, they will have developers that are in your time zone. So it's a lot of Latin American countries um, where they're pretty much on your same exact time zone. It's, it would be like working with a developer who's in New York, right? Super, super easy to get everybody on an 8 a.m. standup because you're like, oh, okay, cool. It's 10 a.m. where you're at. This is actually better for you. Um, but as far as like um, a lot of like Asian developers, they're working on U.S. time. Uh, not that this is not going to jump on this soon because this will not be how it's going to be forever. Right now, Asian development is extraordinarily cheap. It won't be like that forever. They are highly, highly skilled. They're extraordinarily well-spoken. They're extraordinarily well-documented. They're super polite. They're always on time. So get it while it gets good because they're coming for you. Well, that's, that's good to... Good to know in case... Uh, and they're on U.S. time. That was your actual question. They, they work on yeah. U.S. time. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Well, and, and, and actually, I was wondering more so, do you put everybody in the stand-up or um, do, you, do you only put certain people depending on uh, people are working on? I actually... Um, it's yep. funny you say it, you th- say that first because I assumed everyone was <laughs> was working on U.S. time or at least making the time for the meetings. Um, yeah. Which, this, this is a concept that's, that's been very emergent in um, remote work circles, by the way. A lot of people in the remote work movement are really behind the concept of asynchronous work, which I think is more yep. so like what you're doing with your UA team in the Philippines. And I think yep. you're familiar with async. Uh, anybody is listening or watching this does not. Basically, the concept that you don't have any meetings that you're working in in terms of just in your project management tools, documentation, and you don't need to coordinate or meet in order to discuss what you're working on. Yep. work on the other end of the spectrum is basically when you work nine to five, everybody works the same hours. And it's really built around the synchronicity of your working hours more so than the work itself. Um, I also would make the case that you can further elaborate a couple of different models in between synchronous and asynchronous, which is what I gravitated towards at uh, my last company. Um, you can have partial synchronous where you overlap certain parts of the workday, but everybody works in a continuous stretch in different parts of the world. So for example, if you're in New York, you work nine to five. And then if you're in Europe, you work nine to five as well, but you have three hours, I believe three hours, depending on where you are in yeah. Europe, you have three hours of overlap. Yeah. So in that time, you can get on calls, you can coordinate, you can do stuff with your team across the time zone. Um, and then you also have meeting synchronous work, which is another model where you don't have set schedules. People can be really flexible in terms of moving stuff around. You can work in the morning, you can take a couple hours off in the middle of the day to go do stuff, go to the gym, go pick up your kids from school, whatever. Um, and then you come back in the evening for a period of work. 
you make sure that you're available for certain meetings. So that's yeah. stand up. If stand up in the in the US is in the morning, but in Europe it's in the afternoon, and in Asia it's day, it's at night. And basically, you say, all right, I'm going to be there for stand up, but aside from that, I'm going to structure my day in a way that makes sense. Those are kind of the, the different yeah. models. Um, but you yep. you get everybody on stand up, no matter where you are. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. according to your definition, we we have meeting synchronous. Um, but really, the, unless we're working on a extremely difficult problem, or the velocity needs to be really really high. Um, it could be completely async. In my opinion, if you're working on something that does not have extremely high velocity or is a difficult problem and you can't do completely async, you either are trying to cut costs by working with junior developers, which is totally fine, or you're completely disorganized, which is not totally fine. You're not doing your job correctly and you are not giving good definition or you haven't done enough planning with your team before you've kicked everything off because your planning period should be like, oh, okay, cool. We're actually planning. We're, we're doing meetings. We're going through questions. We're trying to think ahead as far as like, okay, what could go wrong? And you're planning for all those scenarios. Um, I think you could definitely say like, okay, we're going to have one meeting every week and a half. That's going to be important. That way we can drill through problems, just align with it saying, okay, here's what I've done the last week and a half. Here's all my like uh, commits. Take a look at everything because everything looks super solid. But honestly, that's kind of what GitHub is for anyways. It's for reviewing pull requests. You do your like developer reviews and say like, okay, cool. Everything's on track. So if you're working on a simple solution for a software, say you're building, you're building another, you're building the 50,000th CRM uh, or the cat sitting yeah. industry. You should have no problem whatsoever with running async for your entire development company. Got you. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it's interesting you say it like that because one of the big reasons why, uh, why, why at Optimate, if we did not do async, we discussed it definitely a couple of times. I think everybody's like, oh, we have no meetings. That's great. I don't have, I don't have to get yeah. on Zoom calls. Um, but, um, but the nature of the work we were doing back then was very creative. And I think creative work where you don't have yeah. a very clearly defined project that requires more coordination because you're kind of figuring things out along the way. And that, definitely yeah. that was a challenge. Um, so would you change the way that you have think about meetings in terms of what project you're working on? Like, how would you, how would you set that when you go into something? Yeah. So you, there's also like every time a new tool comes out, that's interesting. Uh, the definition of async changes, right? So I would, what do you mean? I would, if there's, if there's, if there's a singular problem that you're trying to work on that is well-defined, that could have a well-defined or a well-explained answer, then something like Loom is extremely helpful. You can send a loom, you can go through and you're like, oh, okay, cool. Here's exactly my problem. I've been able to sign it for you. Now you have time to think of the actual solution instead of, holy shit, I want to get off this Zoom call. Please leave it alone. I'm going to try to give you the quickest solution possible, right? But if you're sending those back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, and there is like either miscommunication or it's a truly difficult problem that you kind of need to have a creative solution and say like, it's two senior engineers talking about it versus who's like a junior engineer that is asking a senior engineer a question that every senior engineer would be able to define a well-defined answer, uh, then it's actually like you need to jump on a Zoom call and just kind of like talk about it and actually like have a meeting about it. And that's when like, okay, cool. Then like synchronicity is actually like incredibly helpful. And I think kind of as you go higher and higher uh, up the chain of command, I think you kind of need to be a little bit more synchronous or is like lower and lower and lower, you can be a little bit more async if you're looking at, hey, here's the exact task that I need to be doing right now. Um, and I'm sure that kind of 
there's a little bit of fluidity as you move up the chain because you're going to need mentorship for senior engineers for junior engineers. Got you. Um, on that note, I want to talk a little bit about how you architect your team, especially across your dev team. I think it's really fascinating when you look at this from the perspective of using freelancers and having a modular team. But how do you think about your team architecture in terms of senior people, in terms of junior people, in terms of who you're bringing in on projects? Is there a particular um, strategy that you have or like some way of thinking of how you architect that team overall? Um, and also, if you're going to have somebody that you're working with in-house for any of a very small, very nimble, like light team in-house, but yeah. across in-house, obviously you've had to hire some people in-house as well over the years. How do you, how do you architect that across who you bring in-house, um, who you bring in as a freelancer or as an external vendor? And then also what level of uh, senior, junior, and then how that gets yeah. split across the entire. Yeah, totally. So as far as like the org chart, the, the most important people that you want to keep are the people that have been there the longest. As long as they're talented, you can trust them uh, and they have a solid network too. Um, so those are the people that we've kept the longest are people that are highly senior, um, get along well, and also are really good at communicating and understanding within like how your organization is, uh, how it works, right? So the probably the most important person in your entire development organization is whoever's working on your API. Number two is your senior backend engineer or your VP of engineering, whoever's running that. And number three is whoever's running security for you. Um, those are all super important because those are the people that are going to be able to, one, understand the history of your project, understand how to more heavily communicate and document things that you've worked on in the past, and two, be able to develop enterprise features for your customers. That's one of the reasons we've been able to raise such little amount of cash and the longevity of our business has been absolutely insane. If you look at the tenure of most Colorado SaaS companies, um, it's around like two to five years. We've completely smashed all of them, raising a very small amount of money. And it's because we're able to say, okay, cool, we're going to keep our highly talented senior people. That way we can build enterprise features and pass enter enterprise security reviews for huge multinational companies that are going to pay us enterprise cash um, without really having to hire like a massive sales team. So those are the two uh, the people that I would say are most important that you want to keep as close to the chest as possible. Treat them as well as you can. Do anything you can for them. Uh, they're in town, charge their cars. Go in and like pick them up at the airport. Like be as personal as you can. It also helps if your people are cool as hell. Like our, our developers are so cool and like, just super smart. It's also nice that Luminati is like a fun place to hang out. You come get tattooed and skateboard and stuff like that. Uh, oh yeah, but then that's true. You guys have do have some dope offices. As much and I don't. My my whole thing is like let's go remote, let's get rid of the office. <laughs> but uh, I will say you guys have some dope offices. I might Thanks, say that's an, that's an expensive perk, but it's super nice. <laughs> it's cool. Yeah, stuff. but you got some other stuff yeah. going on in it as well, like the fabrication business. You kind of need a warehouse for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not a whole lot of uh, remote <laughs> fabrication companies. But yeah, I would say I would say those are the those are the most important people that you want to um, be working with on an ongoing basis. Uh, it doesn't pay me to say this, but I'm hesitant to say this. But pay them whatever they need. Um, they're incredibly important, and you're going to be saving money in the long term versus paying like that six hundred thousand dollar a year full time uh, team that I was talking about earlier. Also, the one the one major benefit from hiring a remote team that I've seen too as you can pick and choose your feature teams, right? So you can say you hire a senior front engine, front end engineer, um, and you're like, oh, okay, cool. This person works in our tech stack. They've worked in video before. 
oh, we need now to have them build like a chat feature. If they've never built a chat feature before, they're going to be okay and they're going to be able to nail it. But with feature teams specifically, you can go out and you can say, I'm going to hire a perfectly replicable person of that senior front engineer, but I'm going to make sure that they've used the exact tooling and they've built a chat feature in the past, right? And that is an extreme advantage, both from total number of hours on a project and the velocity they can work. Um, it, building software, so coming out of the chat example, software that's never been built before, it's like building a car from scratch every single time. You can kind of estimate how long it's going to take you. But if you're building something that's, it's like, how long would it take you, Andrew, to build a hydrogen car? And you're like, well, I think the chassis will take me this long. Um, I think like each of the seats will probably take me four hours. Unfortunately, the hydrogen fuel cell, nobody's ever built one of those before. So it could either take uh, 20 hours or 25,000 hours. We're not quite sure. So having somebody who's had experience in building a hydrogen car that is a software company for a specific feature set is a super huge competitive advantage. Got you. So I, I, I in, in some sense, the way that you're generally thinking about team building and, and, and team architecture is basically the things that you put internal are the super high leverage bits of talent that you need on a consistent basis. And it's, it's the overarching vision and the design process of really determining what you're exactly building. But the modular components and the outsource components are basically specific features, specific things that you know you need to have built. But you go out and you find essentially the people that have done that before or are really, really good at that and then put them on yep. the project and then they can do that very efficiently, very well and then move on. I, I like this a lot. I think this this is one of the directions that the world is going when it comes to economy, freelance. Um, yep. And uh, you know, we're, we're really still in the infancy stages of this of this movement and other things have kind of taken over the media spotlight, AI and politics and all this and that, whatever bullshit. Yeah. But I mean, really, I, I, I think what what you're doing with your modular team could be the direction for a lot of industries and other functions also besides development, which is to say, if you take your marketing, if you need somebody who's really good at ads, I mean, you can hire an ads agency, but you can also go out and you can hire a freelancer who's really, really good at ads, bring them in, build out your campaigns, and then uh, and then have someone internal that's really high leverage person then sort of manage them and optimize them over time. Um, I think a key component of, of your system as well is that you have... Uh, in a sense, you have assets once once things are developed. Um, if you want to kind of look at it that way from a financial perspective, you invest in your modular dev team. They come in, specialized expert. They build some features or something. But then after they built that, you have those features. Those are those are assets that are now part of the product platform. It's not like yeah. a managed process that you need to pay somebody a few grand a month every month. And if you stop paying them, then all of a sudden your chat feature disappears. It's like, no, you, you, once it's built, it's built. You, you, you have it, yeah. which I think does change the dynamics of uh, what you're building a little bit as well. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about, uh, talk about culture. And in, in particular, a couple of components of culture, because as we have just alluded to, you guys have an office, um, could consider, I'm not sure if the label actually really does justice to, to, <laughs> to your full team. You could consider yourself a hybrid organization in the sense that you have people over. An office. Um, it's a little bit more nuanced than that, obviously. But you have an office, and you have people that are working not in that office. Um, and so, I guess the first first question around culture that I have is, um, how how do you think about culture across the whole team when you have some people working fully remote, some people that are freelancers, um, but they're still in like stand up meetings and they're in, involved at, at a you know, regular basis with leadership of the company. Um, and then you also have people that are in the office that are there, um, you know. 
I don't know about full time, but like a higher percentage of the time they're going into the office. You're there, you see them in person. How do you think about culture across everybody? And like, does anybody ever feel left out that they're they're not in the office or um, do things come up? What's what's going on yeah. with your, your culture? So, so we're we're very unique in a in a two different like two different senses. First sense is we live in Colorado, so we can always invite people to come skiing. We invite them to come skiing. We go and hang out in the in the mountains, like. We go hang out and it's like a retreat. Um, the second sense is we're a very small company, right? We don't have HR. We don't really have any sort of like the standard pr- like procedures and controls. And I think people really like that. We treat every communication like a group chat. You know, we're like, go check out this crazy video. Like, you know, probably like the top 10 people that you send Instagram DMs whenever you see like a hilarious video. We treat everything like that. So we're like, oh, okay, cool. Now that we have everything preposterously well organized, now we can fuck around. Like we already know what everybody's supposed to be doing at all times. Now we can fuck around. We can have fun. We can treat everybody like we're like not a bunch of like stiffs that are trying to like make sure that we're trying to like climb some ladder, right? We're able to treat each other like humans. And I think that's a super important, um, a part, a super important way to, uh, to keep everybody kind of like unified and just like having fun. We all, and that's, Another thing that's super, super nice about remote too, and having like a modular dev team, if somebody doesn't fit well with the team, you're like, okay, cool. Thanks for helping us build that feature. I'm, that was great. Um, I'm probably not going to hire you for the next feature because you're a weird fit for whatever reason, right? It gives you a lot more flexibility without a whole lot of liability. Got you. That, I like that a lot. And, and then obviously if you like somebody, you're like, all right, let's do this again. They're, they're great. And yeah. You where you can play. And people can sense it too. Um, like especially people that are out long, like Toptal, where they're like, yeah, I worked with 20 different companies in the last two years. They're like, oh, okay, cool. They can sense it and they know what is a good fit. And they also probably feel mutually. They're like, oh, okay. These people are weird. They're like, for some reason, I'm in like a group slack with these people and they're sending me like Reddit shitty technical videos. Like, this is crazy. I'm super confused by this. Like, oh yeah, we both feel like this is probably not a great fit. Right. But it gives you the the fortunate aspect of not having a super long time series where you have to kind of rip off a band-aid and kind of deal with somebody who's been working there for like two years. Got you. So it's almost in a sense like culture comes from the core. And then as you bring people yeah. in on a modular basis, they vibe, they vibe, and then you see where things yeah. go. And if they don't, they don't. And you always have options for somebody else that you can bring in. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, speaking of HR. You don't have HR, but obviously you have needs from HR. How, yeah. do, you, how do you handle it? And especially, I, I will place an emphasis on um, on remote. Of course, anybody on your team that is remote. Um, let, let's let's exclude contractors because, generally speaking, I know working with contractors is very uh, relatively easy, so to speak, in terms of compliance, in terms of taxes, and like all of the HR load of what yeah. you do with people. Um, so, in terms of employees. How do you think about HR? You don't have an HR team. You have someone, like you have a vendor, you have someone fractional, um, you just have systems like CEO do it. But how does that work? Yes. Yeah, so unfortunately, this is something that we really need to iron out as far as the rest of the business is concerned. But from like technical controls perspective, there's something called. So I'll preface this by saying a lot of my job is dealing with cybersecurity reviews to where it's me versus like a group of like 10 people on a Zoom call from a Fortune 500 company asking me like ridiculously complicated questions about encryption, about uh, like production controls, about 
any one of 500 different questions that I've been asked in the past. Um, and so that is regulated by something called a SOC 2. It's a compliance framework. So it's like, okay, cool. How do you do development? How do you make sure that you have physical security around your infrastructure for data storage? How do you make sure that you have data sovereignty, making sure the data isn't going to 20 different companies, your countries around the world when it's supposed to be just like safe housed in the UK. Um, so within all of those different frameworks, there's also an HR framework, right? And so that's typically called um, what is your like security review document, right? So that's how, how do you onboard people? How do you onboard new vendors? How do you onboard independent contractors? How do you on onboard full-time people? Okay, cool. What controls do they have over their physical devices? Okay, cool. What controls do they have when they're in office? What controls do they have when they're remote? Um, how do you offload people, right? How do you ensure that data isn't being stolen when you're offboarding an employee that's been fired? What about if they've been laid off? What if, what if their contract is up? So you have to go through all these insane controls. Um, and if you're going with any enterprise uh, company, you're going to have to go through that sort of like, okay, I'm going to answer all these questions. Uh, and then we're going to have a regulator come through to make sure that we are actually abiding by all these. So a lot of our HR on the development aspect of things is coming from like a legal compliance framework to where we're just like, okay, this is great. You get to tell us what we're supposed to do and we're just going to do it because we have no other choice. Yeah, yeah. But also I don't have to think about HR and that's really nice. So I, but I, I love that you look at HR through a product lens. It does justice to, <laughs> to yeah, particular, yeah, yeah. <laughs> your perspective on things. Um, so in terms of putting that into practice though, how, how is that, how is that done? If you say, oh, we need to have these certain things to be compliant. Who, who's, yep. who, who's registered? Like what, who is the person that's actually doing this stuff in terms of making sure your HR is you? <laughs> that case of me. Cause I mean, it, it, it comes down to a hiring framework, right? So say you hire a developer, you have to, Come on, you have to have them sign an NDA. You have to have them go through all of their different compliances. You have to say, okay, cool. What VPN are you using? Oh, sorry, you can't use that VPN. Here's a license to our VPN. Like, here's access to our code base on a need to know basis, which is called role based access control. So, um, least privilege. So they need, um, pretty much as the, the smallest admin permission they need in order to just pull code down and start writing. Um, so you just kind of bake it into that, right? So it's pretty much here's access to things. Here's what you're going to need. Here's where you're going to get designs, right? Because nobody's seeing things on an on-prem situation. Everything is, Hey, here's access to this SAS that we use for XYZ. That's design. That's, Hey, here's access to Jira. Here's how we actually push code, stuff like that. So you kind of just bake it in. It's, it's honestly fairly easy. Gosh. And then, um, on the, on the, on the tax side and on the, um, registration side are you are you registered in any other countries outside of the u.s as a business entity or is it all within the u.s in terms of appointments how is that structured legally speaking yeah i'm, I'm not 100 percent sure that would be operations question that i'm thank god not a part of uh, but yeah i'm pretty sure we're only registered in the u.s gotcha um cool then i think uh, we touched on security um in a bunch of different areas i did want to dig into a little bit about like security and i think about that but it sounds like it's mostly driven by SOC 2 compliance all essentially yeah. from a, a enterprise spec perspective um there's just a, a couple other areas i wanted to uh, discuss and this is a big one for for you and i as we go back i first met doing marketing growth marketing back in the day back in denver and i want to talk about revenue and growth in a remote context because you are working with companies all over. It's not like you're just working with 
companies who work national, international potentially as well yeah. um, with different clients. In terms of, and we can split this up into like sales and marketing component. Um, I know you built a pretty interesting marketing stack and a marketing process of bringing in customers. Um, but when you, when you uh, think about uh, reaching your market and how you're going to do that on the marketing side, what's the strategy? What's the thinking? And in particular, um, I want to maybe take you back to the early days of when you were first building out the marketing components of what a lot of your your growth has been has been built on. Um, how were you thinking about that? And, and how did you get that going? Yeah, yeah. So absolutely. So we do an insane amount of inbound. Uh, we send, I do the math real quick. Plus one we do about, plus one we do about 80. 80 <laughs> yeah, yeah. Big shock. So, so um, we're sending about 9,000 cold emails every single week which is pretty nuts. Um, and that is how we get the majority of our conversations. From that, we're getting about 40 to 50 meetings a week with a team of two people on our sales team, which is pretty, pretty wild. So that was just due to necessity on the job. And we're saying, like, okay, cool. Don't have a whole lot of marketing dollars. Let's try to engineer a way to create like an automated cold outbound process, right? Uh, and then we kind of do just the typical like, okay, cool. We're going to have branded keywords for AdWords campaign, making, we're taking number, making sure we're taking number one spot. We run like lead gen campaigns on LinkedIn. We also run extremely long top of funnel campaigns on LinkedIn and on AdWords. So what we'll do is we will take the absolutely, absolutely lowest cost per click. We'll retarget those people. We'll give them very, very low stakes lead gen um, lead magnets, or we'll just try to have a conversation with them actually on the landing page uh, or directly book to meeting. We'll give them a couple of different options, but always one option uh, at the forefront that is the uh, lowest barrier to entry. Um, and then we'll continuously retarget them and essentially create like a never ending, super, super long top of funnel campaign until we inevitably get them to schedule a meeting to get on the phone with us. And that, that final lead magnet is typically, Hey, we're going to help put together a video marketing budget for you for the upcoming year. Gotcha. So that's typically how we, how we think about it because we're, we're really trying to get like an LTV of like, $2,500 and up, right? So we're trying to go for these like semi-large companies and the rest of the very serious enterprise clients we get are typically either from referral or from that outbound. And we'll like simply just walk our way up the path into the highest decision maker we can to kind of extend that LTV if the product is right for them. Got you. So I'm distilling that down then into a couple of different components. It, it sounds like really the marketing strategy is Originally coming out of a low cost place, which I, especially when you're a small company, obviously you want to be very efficient with your dollars. You want and very high yield, high leverage places and huge budget, tens or hundreds of thousands to spend on brand campaigns or whatever. And so putting that into email and expanding on to all the other advertising channels for digital sense makes, makes sense to do so. Digital first, you're targeting nationally, internationally, um, nationally, Inter international is kind of tough. Um, both from the perspective of we try to focus on iPhone as much as we can, um, just because iPhone is the hands down. Besides, like, if we could target iPhone and Samsung Galaxy S20 and up, we would. That's just not the nature of how iPhones work or smartphones work globally. Um, it's very, very tricky to get cameras to work all Android devices in a way to where you're standardizing high frame rate and high resolution. So we're typically just saying like, okay, cool, we'll get 
Canada, US, Latin American markets, and then we'll do Australia and Western Europe. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. So you've got your geographies set to a couple of different key regions that fit the product, essentially, that fit yep. what you're actually selling. You know you can have a customer experience. You know it, it makes sense. Um, I've been from there. You your system up. Uh, I can't believe you're still getting that kind of results with that, by the way. If <laughs> you're sending that email volume, yeah. there's no uh, fatigue, which is honestly fantastic. Um, yeah. And then from there, you get a certain amount of volume. You have your, your low-level um, packages that you get a lot of people in on, and then on the back end, high-level referrals, renewals, things like that in terms of increasing your LTV and really, I'd yep. say, customer base. Um, you said that you handle this all with two salespeople. How the hell do you do that? And in particular, um, when you're when you're selling remotely, that's a very different skill set than if you're doing like suit and tie in person. Walk yeah. Drive and you sit down and have a meeting with key decision makers, work your way around the, the enterprise ladder. Um, how do you think about that? And uh, in particular, is, are there any things that you've learned along the way of building out this entire sales and marketing engine that uh, have been key in um, either increasing your close rates, um, increasing your, your sales efficiency, or, or just in some way the effectiveness, effectiveness of your guys? Yeah, so totally. I mean, when we first started, Zoom meetings were not commonplace. People would say like, hey, we're in New York. This is crazy that we're even having this meeting right now, which sounds like a billion years in the past, right? Oh, yeah, uh, now <laughs> everything is Zoom. And it's crazy to think like, oh, this is nuts. In 2020, this is the first time any of these people have been on Zoom. We were on Zoom all day, every day, right? Um, so we're super native to this and like it feels completely natural. Things that we've learned very recently, text reminder, email reminder, follow-up day before, text reminder, follow-up 30 minutes before. Hands down, that's where the funnel is the leakiest for, I think, any sort of like lead gen campaign. Uh, once you've spent getting enough the money, getting them on. Yeah. Getting them, getting them actually to show up is hands down the most difficult part. Um, so text reminder follow ups, super important. You can enrich data, um, a million different ways. Hands down, the best way is to enrich it by APIs. Um, so a lot of the reason that we've been able to amass such insane amounts of data. Is because we're not using out-of-the-box platforms. What we're doing is we're actually writing custom-developed software, which is typically through the terminal, and we're writing Python scripts to amass the hundreds of thousands to millions of records of data a year. Um, and that's really important to us because it keeps all the data very, very clean. It makes it to where we're able to send out highly personalized outbound emails to people. Uh, the other thing that we've really noticed that's been extremely helpful is... Um, having a high value first qualifier meeting that is not a demo, but it's also not, hi, nice to meet you. How many people are in your company? Are you a decision maker? Who is yeah, the decision maker? If it, those meetings absolutely crush me. Um, but also it's very important to say like, okay, cool. Let's sell this first person that we're on a call with. And then we're going to follow up after that with a deck that's increased. It like super, super helpful. It helps to have the person who was first on the meeting not have to remember everything you talked about on the first meeting and then sell in a follow-up before the final decision makers because you're essentially asking the person who you originally sold to become a salesman for your company to go talk to other decision makers here what's that dude i gotta put my computer in real quick no worries get it well while you're doing that i'll sort of summarize a little bit because um i think you hit on a couple of fantastic points first thing is that if you are selling in a remote context them on the meeting is a huge friction point. So 
reminders before, reminders after, making sure that you have a good, clear flow of communication that makes it seem like it's not just like another thing on your calendar that's lower priority than everything else. That's key. Yep. Um, and then also having a lot of context going into that meeting so that you're not just jumping on a call with someone that you have no idea who they are and, have, and they, they're kind of random, making sure that you know a little bit about them so and, and that they're qualified, of course, so that you should be on that call. That's a conversation that makes sense. Um, and then also, once you're, once you're on the call, making sure that it's not um, too basic and kind of a waste of time with stuff that could have been uh, searched on LinkedIn or Googled or found in any number of data-enriched tools that are available to the modern yeah. person. Um, and you're having actually a really productive conversation about like, oh, let's solve some problems for you. And then after that, give them the tools to then be the salesperson in their organization. And then yep. if it's an interesting solution, talk to the right people, get the next meeting. And Yeah, yeah. Because there's also like time decay too, right? So in addition to like all of those things where you're like, oh, okay, now they have to be the salesperson. Now they have to remember all of this stuff. Like the time decay like is so exponential to where you're like, oh, okay, cool. You remembered 90% of this information an hour after. One day after, you're going to maybe remember 75%. Okay, three days after, 50%. One week after, you're like five to 10%. No chance. Like you're, you're in a bad place after that. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Um, that I think is super insightful. Um, one of the things that, um, that I've been thinking a lot about lately is remote selling. And I think a lot of people that, to your point, are coming up in a native environment where being on a call like this, being on a Zoom call, talking to people in a different location, and with this context of selling, um, if that's that's native to you, it's a lot easier. But if you're coming into this with years and years of in-person selling, um, and, and selling in really a different modality, or even over the phone, which is a very different experience and seeing somebody. But this can be different experience. And there's ways to do that well, and there's ways to kind of get by and do okay. But if, if you're bringing in new people into your team that are more junior, junior SDRs, you got to train them on the right ways to sell. And if you have people maybe that are more experienced, used to the modality of the medium of how you're communicating, they need to do that well. Also, and it's something that that's something that I've seen um, working with different clients over the years of uh, working with, let's call them old school salespeople that are, are good selling, um, but selling to them is they hit up all their relationships, they jump on the phone, they go, they visit someone's office, they do the rounds. It's not necessarily yeah. as modern in terms of approach, which I think is not opportunity, frankly, for a lot of organizations. Especially at the enterprise level, because you can, you can today, you can go through the old ways and people are used to it, but times are changing and things are moving. And if you're going to run an efficient sales team, uh, kind of bringing it back to the numbers, one of the things that, um, that, that we're focusing on is how do we use sales as not only a, gr a growth lever, but also in terms of profitability lever for efficiency in an organization? What are you doing right now with your sales team? If you have, let's say five, um, high level enterprise account executives flying in first class around to meeting the different parts of the country. Are they, are they right. all coming out of Denver to go around to these different locations? Do they say, yeah. all right, we need to close this deal. And they say, okay, put me on a plane to this city. Yeah. They say, oh, we need to go to the conference. And then after our conversation, we fly back to the city or do they say, okay, sounds good. Let's make the first contact. So let's see if we can close a deal. And you don't pay for first class flights, you don't need to pay for the conference, yeah. you need to pay for all this other extra stuff. You can do that. And that's great. And I think it's good to have those tools and toolbox, but you save a hell of a lot of money if you're able to sell fully remotely. That means 
Yeah. Yeah. So 95% of our clients we have never seen in person. I think that was probably 25% in like between like 2016, maybe 2019. Uh, but yeah, it be, people have a different like barometer of trust. What one reason that really works for us is because we don't have a lot of like competitors, even lateral competitors. We don't, we just really don't have a lot. So people are impressed by the technology. We have a ton of competitors where we need to like, where like the actual relationship was the thing that changed whether or not they were going to say yes, that might be a little different. Um, so it's pretty much just like, hey, make sure, I think there are three major important elements in nailing a Zoom call, right? Uh, and I'm not doing one of them very well, but number one, super, super solid imagery in the background. Make sure your background is well-balanced. Make sure there's a little bit of color. Make sure you're dressed well. Number two, Make sure your audio source is super solid. No matter what you have to do, if you have to set up like a Yeti mic, also with video, if you need to use your iPhone, yeah, exactly. SM57, perfect. Also, if you need to, um, if you need to set up like an external cam, now with Zoom, you're able to use the iPhone as your external camera and your external mic. It looks so much better. The camera that we're on right now, this is a 2021 MacBook Pro. It only has 720p. That's not even HD. It looks horrible. So try, please, for the love of God, to use something that's at least 1080 to make to make sure your video quality looks better. It's exactly like if you were wearing in person a hoodie versus a suit. It makes you look so much more pro. And three, make sure your technology is working. It's so crazy how many demos I've been on to where you can tell the person hasn't restarted their computer in a year. You're like, I can tell your RAM is absolutely exploding. You're probably running 25 different background applications. And also, like, you don't know how to use PowerPoint. This is insane. Like, please, for the love of God, make sure everything is like buttoned up super tight. Close all your applications. Uh, restart your computer. Make sure you know if you're going to display something, you know how to display it. You know how to go full screen. You make sure you have picture in picture. That way your face is still visible on the bottom of the screen. Uh, stuff like that. So I think those are the three most important audio, visual technology that's actually running everything that you're showcasing on your computer. Yeah, I completely agree. And I, I think, um, I mean, we've all been on a, on a call. I mean, technical difficulties happen to the best of us. We've all been on calls where someone's trying to find the button. Oh, where's the button for this thing again? And then you cue the, uh, the trite jokes about technology. Oh, technology these days always change. And there's tons of these bullshit. Um, yeah, I think maybe a lot of people are very good at uh, small talk about technology instead of figuring out technology platforms themselves <laughs> in, the, in the last yeah. couple of decades. Um, man, should have come with the, the iPhone camera today. <laughs> I know, I know. Or using Riverside. I'm not really sure what, not really sure what Riverside's up to these days. Let's see what we can do. FaceTime no, camera. Not- nah, it doesn't, it, it will not allow me zoom only zoom lifestyle. <laughs> it's all good. All good. Um, cool. Well, uh, we have uh, a lot of time going into all kinds of areas about, about the work you're doing with your team, about how you're structuring your company in remote context. Um, I'll just ask one last question and then we can wrap things up, which is, um, is there anything else that uh, tend to think about in a remote environment or anything that uh, you didn't really discuss that you think is important? Is there, like things you've learned along the way, tips and tricks, secret sauce, all that good stuff. Anything else? Yeah. So any developer that's listened to any part of this conversation is probably saying, 
There is one very, very important aspect of all of this that you've completely neglected that nukes almost every software company and will at some point completely gridlock them from making any new innovative features. And that's dealing with technical debt. Um, so technical debt is very, very important. It's like if you had a car and you said, okay, cool, this is a really nice car. I like this car a lot. Let me add a turbocharger on it. Okay, cool. That's great. Uh, I really liked doing that. That was really cool. Let's, I don't like the way this car sounds. Let's add a titanium exhaust system. Okay, cool. This car sounds awesome now. Let's put it on 25 inch flats. Uh, that sounds great. Now this car looks cool. The rims look really cool. And then you're 20,000 miles into this car and you said, oh shit, we never changed the oil. Now my car is completely destroyed. That's what technical debt is, right? If you're continuously building, especially with a modular team and the modular team does not understand and more importantly, um, the, the product owner or the product manager does not understand, hey, I need to make room for technical debt, um, whether or not that's updating version control, saying, okay, cool, we have 25 libraries that need to be updated. That poses a security risk and it poses just you're going to have a bunch of cool new features, but your software isn't going to work because you're going to be riddled with bugs, either bugs that you can see in UI or even worse, bugs that just keep the functionality of your core foundation of your product uh, from working well whatsoever. So technical debt, keep it in, keep it in check. Um, what I was talking about as far as uh, annotating anything in tickets during those standup meetings that says, hey, we're making this trade-off for this trade-off, but we want to fix that in the future. Anything that you hear, we want to fix that in the future after it's released, you can just throw that right into the technical debt category because you're going to be on to the next feature. Always bake in time in your features to fix technical debt. Mm. And I I'd imagine, especially in a in a, a modular context, especially in a remote context, definitely in an async context, if you year later are trying to build something and someone's like, what the hell is going on? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. It's going to cost you a, a lot of money in the future too, because you're going to, have, the further you away you get from a feature set that has technical debt, you're going to be like, oh, okay, cool. We had iOS developer number one work on this. They know that there is some technical debt that we all agreed on. Okay. That can be safe for later. No, no big deal. But then once you pass through iOS dev two, three, and four, now you're going to have to go back X number of years to remember what iOS dev number one said. If it wasn't clear about your annotation that you made during iOS one tenure, you're going to have a really, really, really hard time figuring out what you needed to fix that you should have fixed X number of years ago. And it's going to cost you a lot of dev hours, velocity, and time. Oh, dev hours, speed, and money. Sorry. Yeah. One of the things that I think is becoming very apparent with remote work is that you need to do certain things, especially at a much smaller stage, the life of the company, and a much smaller scale in terms of the size of the company, in terms of organization, because... Yeah, to your point, if you have um, a developer coming in, working on stuff, you hired them freelance and, and they worked on a certain feature set and then you done and then later you hired a different developer to come in and do some stuff. You need to have the documentation, you need to have the processes, you need to have yeah these kinds of, of, of notes encapsulated in some way in the way that you're doing work in order to keep building on that, around to issues. If you're all working in person, everybody's working there for five years and you can just kind of say, oh, talk to this person. Oh, call them up. What's, you know, they left the company, but uh, on good terms, you know, hit them up, see what yeah. they want. To or it's just like, oh, I don't know. This person did that. And then you run into all these bullshit issues. You can't, you yeah. can't do that if you're going to operate as a very smooth uh, organization. And you look at large enterprises, 
um, they definitely have processes around a lot of these different things because they have a lot more people coordinating. They're dealing with different offices across different locations and time zones potentially. Um, and, and also you have turnover. You have people coming and going, especially working on large complex projects. Like these things, th- these are, these are problems that are not new problems. And you kind of have to deal with this out of necessity. Large organizations, a small organization, you can kind of get away with just like fudging it a little bit and, and yeah. not really worrying about this until later. But if you're going to work in the modern world, especially remotely and especially in the new uh, way of architecting teams using freelancers, um, using contractors, using external vendors on top of a core team that provides direction and design to the things that you're building or different other core functions of the business. If you're going to do that, you need this level of coordination and you need this level of um, just work uh, communication in order to, to really yeah. function at that same level because you're going to run into issues if you don't because of the, when you start putting some, some gaps between the different components of the organization, you can be more flexible, you can be more smooth you can be a lot faster and you can scale in a more intentional way, but yeah, you need those different. Yeah, dude, it's totally an anti-pattern to where like, okay, cool. All of the reasons that like large companies move slow with like a, a bunch of different checks and balances and processes in place are exactly how you can move super fast. as like a remote organization where you're small. True, true. And the balance is like, how do you avoid over, um, over processing? <laughs> Your yeah. stuff, but also uh, you have a structure. Um, cool. Well, man, it's been uh, it's been super fun to dig into all of this stuff, and uh, I I didn't know all of this stuff about how you built your built your team. By the way, so yeah, we've got different pieces of this over the years, but it's fascinating to me to get a bit deeper of a look at all these different components. Um, anything you wanna you wanna mention before we before we jump off? Yeah, uh, check out cinebody.com. That's kind of just generally a, a bunch of uh, cool videos that our clients have made around the world. That's kind of how our software works. It's pretty cool stuff. 